Boy, I'll tell you, if we just went home today after that great singing, meaningful prayers, reading, our day would have been well spent. Now, many of you do not know me. I know that there's a couple that remember me from when we went to camp together at Camp Leatherwood some years ago. And of course, Matt knows me well, having sat in my, some of my classes at the Nashville School of Preaching. But when you come to hear someone that you've never heard before, you never quite know what to expect. And of course, I was called to fill in for Bill Watkins, who got uh, sick and had to go in the hospital. And so I'm here to fill in for him. Kind of reminds me of the story I've heard about a young man, young preacher, was called at the very last moment to fill in for a well-known preacher at a rather large metropolitan church. And so he was there at the appropriate time, sitting down on the front row, as a rather large crowd was gathering and he was getting a little bit intimidated. And he didn't know, quite know how he was going to break the ice. And so he was looking around in this fine auditorium and he noticed up there in one of the stained glass windows that there was a piece of cardboard that had replaced a piece of glass. He said, that's it. So he got up and he said, I know many of you came to hear so-and-so, but he's not here and I am. And I want you to know that I'm a little like that piece of cardboard. I'm not the real thing, but I'm better than nothing. <laughs> well, he went on with his lesson and as he was greeting the brethren going out the back door, one sweet little lady came up to him and said, listen, young man, I want you to know you're not just a piece of cardboard. You're a real pain. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 10 was read to you just a few moments ago. It's a familiar occasion. It's where Moses saw that bush that was on fire, yet was not consumed. Have you ever been mesmerized by a fire? Maybe a fire in a fireplace. Maybe you have a fireplace at home and you just love to sit and look at the fire. Maybe like I was as a young boy at the fireplace at my grandmother's house, just sit and watch those flames dance. Maybe around a campfire to be completely mesmerized by a fire. But Moses looks up on the mountain of God and he sees this bush that's burning and yet it's not burning up. It's not being consumed. The fire just burns and burns and burns. And he, has, he says, I've got to turn aside and see this great sight. And so he goes to the place where the fire was burning and God speaks to him out of that bush and says, take off your shoes. The place where you're standing is holy ground. And we know that there's more going on here than just a, a bush that burns and is not consumed because God gives Moses a mission, a mission that is profoundly important. Let's begin by asking the question, who is this Moses anyway? Who is this Moses anyway? Well, first, who is this Moses before seeing the burning bush? Well, he's a man who has been a shepherd taking care of his father-in-law, his father-in-law's sheep there in Midian for some 40 years. Been there a long time. But not only was he a shepherd, he was also a fugitive from justice. If we had the time to read the second chapter of the book of Exodus, we would find that Moses 
when he became of age, knowing that he was a Hebrew, saw his Hebrew fellows being abused, and he killed an Egyptian. When he knew the thing was known, he hid the Egyptian in the sand. And then Pharaoh wanted to take his life, justice to be served. Moses fled from Egypt. Now think about this a moment. Moses is standing before this burning bush and God says, go back down to Egypt and deliver my people. Moses knowing full well, as soon as he, he goes there and is discovered, he's subject to being executed because he's a fugitive from justice. He's now a humble shepherd, a fugitive from justice, tending his father's sheep. But who was this Moses after seeing the burning bush? Who was this Moses after seeing the burning bush? Well, we all know that story. He saw the burning bush. He was commissioned to go into Egypt and he did so. And he went down to Egypt and he confronted Pharaoh not once, but several times. And then after the, the plagues were brought upon Egypt, Pharaoh finally allowed the people of Israel to leave, to, to go. He went to Egypt. He confronted the most powerful man in Egypt, the man who had the power to take his life at any moment. But now you see Moses is a changed man. He's different. He's not the same man that said, I must turn aside and see this great sight. He is a man who has changed. And right here at the beginning, I must say, that no man, no person, no boy, girl of accountable age, no man, woman can ever be the same after he is confronted or she is confronted by God. Whether it be in the printed page or the word of God or the spoken word or the example of someone else, when you're confronted by God, when you are given a mission by God, when you know that God has confronted you, you cannot be the same. So now Moses is a changed man. Now, notice that phrase. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Why was it holy ground? Why was the place where Moses was standing holy ground? Because God was there. God was there in that burning bush. God was there on that, that mountain that day. Now we must observe that piece of ground is no more holy today than it was before God appeared in the burning bush. Even if we knew where that spot of ground is or was for sure, we don't know. But I've always found it interesting going back to this notion of being confronted by God. I've always found it interesting that when we read in the Bible of folks who really were confronted by an apparition, a divine apparition, a divine manifestation, a divine being, folks were filled with fear. Folks were filled with fear. Many times they became as dead men. Why was that the case? Why is it the case that when man is confronted by God in some form of an angel or some manifestation that he's filled with fear? Perhaps it's because the pure holiness of God stands in stark contrast to our own sinfulness. We are sinful beings. We live in a fallen world. We're members of a fallen race. We are sinners, not because we inherit Adam's sin, but because we ourselves sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. 
We're a fallen human being. And we see God in that burning bush or anywhere else we might see God or be confronted by God. We can never be the same. And we are reminded by his purity, by his ultimate holiness that we are sinners and we can never be the same. I also find it very fascinating that, that as God speaks to Moses here, he connects all of these events back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I tell my students at the Nashville School of Preaching and other places that everything in the Bible from Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three, where God first appears to uh, Abraham and strikes that covenant with him that has at least these elements. I will make of you a great nation. I will give you a land. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And in your seed, <clears throat> all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Everything from Genesis chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 22 can be tied back to those promises because therein begins the scheme of redemption wherein God has made provision for our salvation. And as God commissions Moses to go back to Egypt, he begins to fulfill those promises given many years before to Abraham that they would become a great nation and come out of Egyptian bondage and head toward that land known as the promised land. And it's fascinating because it's very much, very important to our lesson this morning to realize that he worked that plan through human agency. God could have gone down there by miracle, back down to Egypt by miracle and delivered the people of Israel himself. But he chose to work through human agency. And brethren and beloved, he has continued to do that. I have a very good friend. <clears throat> we were involved in a project together. And he always said, God is doing this. God is doing this. God is doing this. And he refused to take any credit, but I had to continually remind him, listen, God has no hands on this earth, but your hands. God has no mouth or speech in this world, but yours. Whatever God does today, he has to do through human agency. And here's the reality. God is looking this morning for the human agency to be involved in bringing that plan of redemption to the lost community surrounding Fountainhead and the rest of the world. We may not be standing before a burning bush. We not be, may not be able to be confronted by God in the way Moses was, but God is this morning confronting you with a mission to take the gospel to the lost of this community because he can only operate through human agency. And so think about that as we continue through the lesson. What is your role in that mission this morning. Now, when Moses was told to go down into Egypt and deliver the people of Israel, it's fascinating that Moses began to make excuses. You see, they weren't reasons. Moses thought they were, but they were excuses. Let's look at them. Excuse number, excuse number one. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? When you're confronted by God with some mission here in this community for this church, for the Lord, for God and for all of mankind and, and you look at that mission and you say, well, who am I? Whoever's responsible for getting Bible class teachers here at this community or in this church comes to you and says, we need a Bible class teacher. Oh, no, no. Who am I? I can't do that. Or somebody comes to you and says, listen, we need some resources to help this missionary go into the mission field. Oh, no, not me. You know, I, I'm just barely making ends meet. We live from day to day, from paycheck to paycheck. Who am I? No, no, I, I can't do that. I'm nobody. Oh, no, I, I can't get up and lead a prayer. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait on the Lord's table. Well, I drop those trays every time. Teach a bunch of four and five-year-olds. Oh, no, no, not me. Who am I? I can't do that. But notice God's answer to that excuse. I will be with you. I will be with you. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Someone has observed that a man and his God constitute a majority. Would you question the power of God to give you the ability to do what he asked you to do? One of the problems in the church today is we do not see the resources that God has given us. We do not see that God is going to help us do the things that he's asked us to do. Hasn't he always done that? I was talking with brother and sister Poole a moment ago. We went to camp together back those many years and I was telling about the, church, the camp that we built up in, up in Butler County, brand new camp, Big Reedy Christian Camp. Look it up on Facebook. Beautiful camp. There were so many times after we started that camp that we wondered, where's the money coming from? Where, where's what we need? Where's the manpower coming? And when we did that, we were selling God short because God came through every single time. Those of us that started that thing, we, we could pour concrete, but you wouldn't want to look at it afterward. There was an elder in a church up there in Butler County, 75 years old. He said, I'll come and pour that concrete, poured every bit of it. Beautiful, beautiful work. Every time God will be with us. But then after having that excuse answered, I'll be with you. Who can question if God says, I'll be there with you. How are you going to question that? Are you going to question God's ability? Are you going to question God's power? Are you going to question God's will? The second excuse. Well, who are you? Look at verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? His first excuse is, Well, who are you? Remember, they'd been enslaved down in Egypt for 400 years, wondering all of that time, where is this God? Where is this great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where is this powerful God? 
that created the world supposedly? Where is this great God that judged the world by water and delivered Noah in that ark? Where, where is this God of whom we've heard so long? And Moses now as a fugitive from justice and humble shepherd reflects that thinking, says, well, who are you? Who are you? Notice God's answer. In verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. I am has sent you. That phrase, I am that I am is difficult to translate. It's translated in various ways, but the meaning is pretty clear. It's the eternal being. I like to say it this way. God has never been and I will be. He has never been and never will be and I was. He is the great I am, the eternally existent one. Who are you? Don't worry about it, Moses. I'm the great I am. I brought this world into existence. I'll take it out with the same word. Don't worry about it. I'm going to be with you and I am the one who can do the things that I say I'm going to do and it'll be okay. Moses still not satisfied. The third excuse. Well, what if they don't believe me? Chapter four and verse one. Notice what he says in chapter four and verse one. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me nor listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. They won't listen. Have you ever used that excuse? Well, I, you know, I, I can't do that. I can't teach. Beside, they don't care what I have to say. They won't listen to me. Oh yeah, my neighbor, he, he's not a member of the church, but he won't listen. He's not interested. Notice God's answer to that. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? Moses had that shepherd's rod in his hand. Throw it on the ground. It became a snake. Pick it up. It became a rod again. Take your hand. Put it in your bosom. He pulled it out as leprous. Put it back. It, it was healed. You see, God has the ability to use whatever resources are at your hand. One of the most amazing things that I've seen in the Lord's church over those 45 years, Matt, is the creativity of our members when it comes to something like Vacation Bible School. It is amazing what you can do with what's in your hand. I'm amazed sometimes at the lessons that are taught by those who take the things that are in their hand and teach powerful lessons. They won't believe me. Well, you know what? When we say that, we're not questioning ourselves. We're not excusing ourselves. We're questioning the power of the word of God. But then the fourth excuse. Oh, I'm not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. I, I can't talk well. Verses 10 through 12 of chapter four. Then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I, I can't talk well. Notice the Lord's answer to that. I'll teach you what to say. 
So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or what makes, man, makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Back when I first obeyed the gospel in May of 1971, was not reared in the church, had only been going to church for a very short period of time with my wife, had heard the gospel and read the Bible very little, but I was trying to read and learn as much as I could. And then the opportunity came to lead a prayer. Secretary of the church there at Granny White Pike called me and said, would you lead our closing prayer Wednesday night? And I said, oh, no, not me. No, 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 I, I can't do that. I, I wouldn't know what to say. No, no, why don't, you, why don't you get somebody else? She said, that's fine, no problem. Hung up. I was in my workstation by myself at the time and for the next 30 minutes, that worked on me. And I thought to myself, if everybody in the church did that, where would the church be? I quickly called her back and I said, have you gotten somebody else to lead that prayer? She said, no. I said, well, put me down. I'll do the best I can. She said, that's all we any of us can do. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. After 45 years of preaching, you know what? I learned a lot. But you know why I learned a lot? Because I committed to teach and to preach. My learning curve went like this. But if I had not done that, I'd be right where I was probably 45 years ago. And the beauty of it is God will teach us what to say if we're willing to learn. Then the fifth excuse. You know this, how many of y'all play Rook? Any of y'all play Rook? Raise your hand if you play Rook. Oh yeah, I knew a lot of country folks play Rook. Now let's see if you play it right. Red one's boss card, right? Rook's the boss card? Nah, red one's the boss card. And you know, if you're sitting there with the red one, you didn't take the bid, you're waiting for the opportunity. After that guy over there took the bids, played the rook, and you know he's got the 14 of trumps, and you got enough trumps to bleed him dry, you're waiting for the opportunity. Whack! Plop that red one down there and take that and set him. That's your trump card. You play that and it's all over. Katie, bar the door. It's all over but the shouting. Well, I'm sure that Moses thought this last excuse was his trump card. Oh, listen, just if it's all the same to you, you know, I'm really busy. I got so many things to do. Why don't you just get somebody else? That's Moses' trump card. Now, most of us here, adults anyway, are parents. And you remember dealing with your children? And I'll use my son, Joey. Time to get up, turn the TV off, take a bath. In a minute, Dad, next commercial. Commercial comes, he doesn't move. You wait a few minutes. Joey, it's time to take a bath. Get up and take a bath. Okay, Dad, in a few minutes. So you let it slide one more time. 
Joey, get up and go take that bath. Okay, Dad, I'm going. Notice what the text says here. Verse 13, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may sin. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Hmm. How do you think Moses felt at that point when he perceived that the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was angry and at this point, Moses decides, well, I guess I better go. I guess I better go. And he did. What was the result? Well, he went down, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. And Deuteronomy chapter 34, let's read those two passages real quickly. Exodus chapter 34, I'm sorry, 33 and verse 11, which says, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. That doesn't look right. Let's skip that one and go on over to Deuteronomy. The close of Moses' life, Deuteronomy chapter 34. We'll talk about this one night this week. He goes up on Mount Nebo and God takes his life and buries him. But notice this, this uh, evaluation, verse seven of Deuteronomy 34. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there is not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all of his land. And by all that mighty power, and by all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The result, Moses became an obedient servant of God like no other that was ever before him or ever after him. He was the friend of God and he was one that spoke to God. You know, isn't it amazing what one person can do when he understands these answers given to Moses are given to him. What could you do if you were to understand these answers are given to you this morning? From this we learn this. Excuse making is not new. It's been around a long, long time. And we learn that the excuses we make are not new. Jesus told a parable about it. Matthew or Luke chapter 14 verses 15 to 24. He told a parable about people making excuses. Flimsy excuses. Oh, they thought there were reasons just like Moses thought there were reasons. He couldn't go down to Egypt, but they're just excuses. And I'm afraid our excuses are not a lot different than those of Moses' day or of Jesus' day. 
And you know, somehow or another, we know intuitively the excuse making just doesn't get the job done. It just doesn't get the job done. I wonder, and to be honest with you, I, I don't know much about the Fountainhead Church. I know Matt preaches here. I know a few folks here. I know it's a good church by reputation. I see a full assembly, did full house, pretty full house today. Heard great singing, but I don't know about the Fountainhead Church. I wonder how many things go undone because somebody's made excuses. But let's turn it in a little different direction here. I wonder how many people sit in this assembly time after time after time and hear Matt and others proclaim the gospel and then issue an invitation to obey the gospel and then offer a flimsy excuse why they don't. And brethren, here's the point. Our excuses are not any better today than those of Moses' day or Jesus' day. When you look at the man in the parable who is offering the excuses, they look real flimsy. When you look at what Moses was saying to God, the excuses he was offering God, again, they are mighty flimsy. And again, I, I don't know where you are today with the Lord. I pray that everybody sitting here under the sound of my voice is a faithful child of God, but I don't know that. But let me tell you a personal story. I suggest that I wasn't reared in the church, was attending church some with my, with my wife. And on an occasion, I had an opportunity to be with a friend of mine who was a faithful member of the church, had grown up in the church. He'd gone to Freed Hardeman and wanted to be a preacher. And on this particular occasion, different than every other occasion where we were at that place, we were by ourselves. And he asked me, he said, Douglas, that's what he called me in my middle name. He said, Douglas, why don't you come tonight and hear me preach at Granny White Pike Church? And I thought, church on Wednesday night, that's crazy. Then I told him, I said, Buster, you know, I've been thinking about being baptized. I hear Brother Basil Overton preach at the Tusculum Church, and I've thought about it, but then I gave him my excuse. You know what my excuse was? Every time we stood up to sing the invitation song, people around me were getting their coats and getting their kids together and putting the books up, and they're getting ready to leave. And I said, well, it must not be important to them. If it isn't important to them, I'm not going to do it. Buster didn't preach me a long sermon. He just looked at me and he said, Douglas, that's the devil talking to you and you need to quit listening. Mary and I went and heard him preach that night. He preached on the prodigal son. We stood up and sang that great old hymn, God is calling the prodigal. I stepped out in the aisle. Gave my hand to Brother Wendell Clip, one of the elders there. And he took me and baptized me into the Lord. What are your excuses today? What's your excuse today for not being a child of God? That's the devil talking to you. You need to quit listening. If you need to respond this morning for prayer to obey the gospel, 
that opportunity is yours right now as we stand together and as we sing this good song.